Welcome to this bonus episode of 278 to Lighthouse Road. Today we are taking a detour and talking some music with an American theme for this 4th of July. Learn the stories behind these songs by Tom Petty, Kid Rock, Jimi Hendrix, U2, and John Mellencamp as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Today, I welcome back Brian Eichenberger, one of the hosts of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories podcast. Brian is a researcher and music file and does a great job at finding the stories behind the songs. Brian, welcome back. Hey, man, I am so glad to be back. Thank you for having me. We had so much fun uh, at, back at Memorial Day, and I'm glad to do this again. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a good time. And, it, you know, it's, well, it may not be about the island. You know what? You're going to walk down the beach and hear some of these songs, and it's nice to have a little detour and, and talk about subject matter that people absolutely love, and, and music is definitely a hot topic. And on a similar note for me, you know, on our show, we spend usually one episode going really, really deep into one subject. So I like this kind of being able to jump and just give you fun tidbits about a whole bunch of stuff. Cause that's, that's, it's fun for me as well to, to be able to uh, kind of hit, hit a whole breadth of different songs and musicians. For those that may not have heard the Memorial Day episode and are just getting into the podcast and, you know, pick one of the latest episodes, share with us what rock and roll bedtime stories is. What do you guys do? Yeah, it really started as me and a buddy who always talk about rock and roll, realizing that we um, we probably could corner the market on being able to sit around and nerd out about the stories and songs, uh, the stories uh, about our favorite artists and songs and, and the legends that you've always heard, the, the lore that's been built up around a lot of different um, things, whether it be why Van Halen has uh, brown M&Ms in their dressing room, or maybe it's about, um, you know, some something with the Beach Boys and Charlie Man. Manson, you know, did they, did Charlie Manson really write a song for the Beach Boys? You've heard these things and and you don't really know if they're true or not. And so we uh, take a, one of those sorts of stories every episode and we dive really deep and, and tell the other person uh, what we find out. And now we're starting to have uh, guests and, and rock critics and writers join the show sometimes to, to jump in and be part of the conversation. So it's really fun. That's great. Where can they find it? You can find it pretty much anywhere you like to download podcasts. Uh, you can find it at Apple. You can find it at Google Play. Spotify's got it. And just search for rock, rock in roll bedtime stories well, let's get started with this uh the national anthem is a great place to start for the fourth of july one of the most famous most discussed and maybe most misunderstood renditions was done by Jimi hendrix at woodstock in 1969 when i looked the song up I found out that Hendrix is a veteran, and that was something I did not know. He was a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. The Army and Hendrix were not a very good fit. He might have been the worst soldier the Army has ever seen other than Bill Murray. (laughs) He received an honorable discharge in 1962, and while he may not have been a big fan of the Army, he was a big fan of the guitar, and he was the closing act at Woodstock where he played his rendition of the National Anthem. What is the story behind this performance? Yeah, so he closed out the festival. He was supposed to play at midnight, uh, and instead he pushed it to 8 o'clock in the morning, which, first of all, is remarkable. Uh, Second, there was about 400,000 people there that weekend. By the time he went on, most people had left, and the people that stayed were really interested in saying that they'd seen Jimmy come on. Um, and so it starts to kind of uh, peter out as his set goes. Uh, so you're down to about 40,000 people, which is still a lot of people. Let's not, let's not misunderstand. But... 
it's not what it was, you know, for that weekend. It's a much, much smaller crowd, which is really interesting. And, and let me say, well, we'll get into this a little more, but let me say we did do a bonus episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories about the time Jimi Hendrix got kidnapped. Did you, do you know this story? I do not know that story. <laughs> he, so he, that, that's a great tease for your podcast. <laughs> he, he didn't know he got kidnapped either. That's what's uh, that's what's really funny. Um, it sounds like something straight out of an 80s comedy. So check out that episode where uh, my partner in crime, Murdoch, unfurls that hilarity. But back to the legitimate rock star side of James Marshall, Marshall Hendricks. Um, did you know that at this point in history, he's the highest paid rock musician in the world? No, had no idea. So, yeah. No idea. So he took a pay cut to do Woodstock and he was still the highest paid uh, person on the bill. The other thing that's really interesting about it is that he was, um, this was like a really crazy time for Hendrix. Uh, he had just kind of emerged three years uh, before Woodstock. So his, I mean, his career was really not very long. Um, as recently as 1966, he's barely making ends meet uh, playing, R &B, playing like these R&B cover bands. And he meets Keith Richards' girlfriend, uh, Linda Keith, and she gets him connected into the rock and roll world by referring him to Stone's management. And Stone's management says, eh, we don't get it. We don't get it. Uh, and so instead, she says, okay, well, let me refer you to this other guy. And it's a guy who had been in the animals who was looking to get into kind of rock management. And he hears uh, Jimmy do a version of Hey Joe, which is a cover. And uh, kaboom, he says, I think I can make this a hit. So he uh, starts working Hendrix. And three years later uh, is when the most iconic Hendrix moments have mostly happened. A lot of the records have already come out. And this Woodstock performance also comes out when he's living near there. Uh, that year, he moved into this eight-bedroom place in Boyceville, uh, which is close to there, and it's called the Ashikan House. His manager had set him up because he was really worried about Jimmy's kind of mental health a little bit, I think, and it wanted to give him a space to write a new album. So he's under tons of stress, he's doing lots of drugs, and Noel Redding has just left the experience. So when they walk on stage at Woodstock, they get introduced as the Jimi Hendrix experience. And he says from the microphone, some phrase about basically like, no, I, this isn't, this is me and my uh, group of blah, 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 rock and roll gypsies, which then gets shortened into band of gypsies, which is now this next phase of his band. He has these different phases of bands he's playing with. Um, so in this, th this is the scene, right? We've kind of set the scene. During that set, he plays this now historic version of Star Spangled Banner with the distortion and the noise. And you mentioned this at the top. You said, like, it's it's very misunderstood. Uh, he literally tries to make the rocket and bomb sounds with his guitar, right? And people take this whole thing as a statement about the Vietnam War. So clearly, Jimmy's up here. He's trying to tell us, to the Americans, you know, it's countercultural moment. People are kind of seeing everything through that lens. Three weeks later, he gets asked about it about the political implications of his performance. And he says, quote, we're all Americans, man. I was like, go America. We play it the way the air is in America today. It's slightly static, <laughs> which is such a great, such a great quote. Uh, of course, the 1970 concert film of Woodstock immortalizes this performance. And it's now gone down in history as a defining moment, not just of the festival, but of like the 60s and the cultural moment altogether. But he gets so exhausted playing because he's been up for about three days um, that that he comes off the stage and collapses, physically collapses after the performance. So crazy story. And yes, when you turn that up the uh, this weekend, uh, just know all of that. <laughs> 
about about Jimmy. Was that quote from the Dick Cavett interview they did? Because that was a, a big interview they did afterwards. Right. So I, and, and I think Dick Cavett was before this. I think okay. Dick Cavett was before this. Uh, I think that happened before Woodstock. I want to say that happened in in sixty seven, maybe earlier in sixty eight. But um, this was, a, I think, this was a magazine interview. Yeah, one of the lines I saw that Jimmy said after he was asked about that performance and and the way he played the rendition of that and he was like i thought it was beautiful i mean he's like i'm yeah. an american i wanted to play the, the national anthem it's like it's just the way i played it and now today you see the super bowl performances and it's just sung and played and all sorts right. of different manners and you know people can be critical about stuff but you know what it's it's well you're right from the perspective that it's kind of changed the way that we approach how that song is performed i mean i do think that there was more uh, preciousness around and and you know a um a certain sort of uh let's let's revere this and let's be very uh, make sure it's very uh respectful and i think now folks are a little looser with that that you know uh, most interpretations are acceptable as long as they're not um you know, just totally done in a way that's disrespectful. But you know what it reminds me of is I remember my childhood uh, it, when Roseanne Barr sang the national oh, anthem. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. yeah that, that, was that, was a, that was a cultural uproar. uproar. Maybe uh, well, on par with Jimmy. So. Yeah. 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 Deservedly yeah. so. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe yeah. Hendrix was in that performance is really what kind of broke the mold, you know, from yeah. it has to be performed yeah. the same oh, way every sure. time. For sure. And he just, you know, lit it up on that guitar and, and kind of opened the door for a lot of other performers. When we did the episode back at Memorial Day about 80s music, we touched on one of your favorite artists, Tom Petty. There are tons of great American rock bands, but Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers seem to be on the edgy side with music videos like Don't Come Around Here No More. They were very different from the concert rock videos, and not many could pull off, really probably nobody else could pull off an Alice in Wonderland themed music video. That was in 1985. Nearly 10 years earlier, in 1976, Petty recorded a song that was released in 1977, and it did not even chart, but is now a classic crank-up-the-volume song and listed as one of the top 100 guitar songs of all time. Tell us about American Girl. Well, listen, Jay, if you're picking songs to talk about on the 4th of July, it gets no better than this one. Uh, Actually recorded, you mentioned 1976, it was actually recorded on July 4th, 1976. It was recorded on the Bicentennial. There you go. Uh, and uh, I'd like to use this question as, or this uh, this uh, conversation as an excuse to mention that I was very briefly, and by very briefly, I mean like we had one practice session and never performed live. Uh, I was very briefly in a cover band that was going to play only the Heartbreakers and the Man in Black, and we were going to call ourselves Petty Cash. <laughs> Unfortunately, we as musicians were not as good as that name. So, if anyone would like to borrow it, you the, are more the than world welcome. Might be better off. Yeah, no, so. come on. <laughs> uh, but uh, so this song is really interesting, right? Uh, opening lyric: "Raised on promises." Uh, that's actually a line of dialogue from a Francis Ford Coppola movie. You know which one? I do not. Uh, not one that is as famous as most of his work. Um, it comes from 1963 movie called The Mincha Thirteen. <laughs> 
and there is a character named Louise who is referring to another woman, and it, it's like the 17th minute of the movie, if you want to look it up. But she says, especially an American girl, you can tell she's been raised on promises. Uh, so this is a great song to talk about in terms of rock and roll bedtime stories, because on our show, we really, I, I kind of mentioned this, but we really talk about like, uh, the tagline is, you know, we put the rest of the rumor in innuendo around your favorite bands and songs. And this one has a whole lot of lore to contend with. Um, there's this reference in it about cars rolling out on the 441 and the picture it paints of a girl on a balcony. And so there's been this urban legend that this song is actually about a girl committing suicide at the University of Florida. Uh, there's a residence hall there called uh, Beatty Towers, and it opened in 67 when Petty was living there, uh, living in the area. And so there's a story that he had heard, like the story is that he had heard about a girl jumping from that balcony in the shadow of 441. So true or false? What do you think, Jay? I think that's false. Yeah. Uh, University of Florida's former historian says there have been many suicides in the school's history, but since the university does not keep a file of them, he, quote, doesn't know for sure if any involved a jump from the towers. Uh, Petty himself is actually on the record, though, saying that this is just an urban legend. Uh, So what did inspire the song? Tom says he wrote it when he was living in an apartment by the 441. And uh, he says the cars would go by and it, quote, sounded like the ocean to me. That was my ocean. Um, and he says, I think that must have inspired that lyric. So regardless, uh, I mean, first of all, I feel better jamming it, knowing it's not about suicide. Uh, but second of all, uh, it, it, it is it's one of the greatest intros of all time. Right. Being an old radio guy. You like it when the intros are long because it means you got more time to talk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I always liked American Girl, but hey, turn it up. It's a great one. I am not sure there is a more patriotic rocker than Kid Rock. He is pure all red, white, and blue. You walk down the beach at Hilton Head or pretty much any beach around the country on the 4th of July, and you are bound to hear all summer long at least once. Tell us about Kid Rock. I mean, Kid Rock's an interesting case of re- of just re-imaging in general, right? Because people have kind of forgotten that he was a rapper. Like, he started in a hip-hop group called The Beast Crew in the late 80s. He gets discovered by this other rapper who ends up being his ticket, uh, this guy D-Nice. And he puts out a rap record when he's 17 years old. It's called Grit Sandwiches for Breakfast. <laughs> you, <laughs> can't make you, this stuff up, listen, folks. Listen, <laughs> you, could, you could say a lot of things about this guy, but he hustled, man. The fame we think of him achieving doesn't actually happen until 1997, right, with Devil Without a Cause. So seven years, he's just doing the work, trying trying to bust out of the Detroit uh, hip-hop scene. Now, there's a lot to say about Kid Rock. I mean, we could do lots of episodes about that guy. Uh, but since you mentioned All Summer Long, we can spend a little time there. Obviously, it's a mashup. It's a Skinner song. It's a Warren Zevon song. Apparently, the beat was actually created for the Insane Clown Posse because they wanted to sample Werewolves in London. Uh, the track has Kid Rock and Uncle Credit, C- Uncle Credit, Uncle Cracker, credited as the songwriters, but it also credits all of the original songwriters. So if you look up the credits to that tune, it's got eight songwriters on it, which means the royalties are being split eight ways. So it's a good thing that it's made a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but possibly the most interesting thing about the song is not the song itself. It's the technology-related tidbit I'm about to drop on you, which is that at the time, in 2008, when that song was dropped, Kid Rock was not letting his songs be put on iTunes. So this was back when artists thought that that was good for them to to because they were getting a small percentage or very, very small percentage on, on anything that was downloaded, etc. But what it created was this imitation industry. So there was a karaoke version 
put up instead that you could download really? up all summer long by Hitmasters. You've seen those, right? You walk through Walmart, oh, yeah. you see the Hitmasters CDs that still exist, yeah, by right? Ronco or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like and there was, another, there was another one by The Rock Heroes, right? I'm sure you can find these on Spotify. Um, those karaoke versions actually charted above Kid Rock's version on the Billboard Hot 100. Wow. Because of the iTunes component. So d- the, the album it was on did fine, and he did fine, but these studio musicians who created the karaoke versions of that song, which is so funny because they're creating karaoke versions of basically a karaoke song, right? Like, I mean, he he is karaokeing a little bit with new lyrics on top of two other songs. So it's just, it's, it's kind of meta. Um, but this leads to a whole different discussion about the intersection of technology and distribution and rock and roll, but we'll leave that for another day. If you had, if you had to equate one person in the golf world to Kid Rock, I would say Kid Rock is to music and the grittiness of it as John Daly is to golf. <laughs> We're talking about John Daly again? Didn't we talk about him last time? Yeah, I love probably, it. probably, but how can, I love you, it. how can you not? Uh, that guy, you know, rolls yeah. up in an RV and hits yeah. golf balls off beer cans. There's, and, and there's some real similarity in his, his whole uh, quote-unquote down-to-earth approach, but... Uh, the next group, while not from America, just absolutely loves the United States. Their most loved and recognized album is named after one of our national parks, Joshua Tree. Share with us the story behind In God's Country by U2. And, uh, you know, Bono's actually stated that originally he didn't know which which country he was writing about. <laughs> hey, Bono, what's, what country is this about? Because you're from Ireland, but all your success is in the U.S., so he would always hedge that, right? Eventually, he dedicated it to the Statue of Liberty. Uh, apparently during the recording of this though, Bono didn't think edge was rocking hard enough. And so he kept like just harassing him and telling the edge that, uh, Hey, you know, I'm a better guitar player than you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sure you are. Now, when I was on this show back uh, in Memorial Day, we talked about Daniel Lanois, right? Who who ends up producing this record? We we talked about Martha and the Muffins, and we talked about his sister, who was in Martha and the Muffins, who basically d- kind of scorched that band by leveraging their um their in- the little influence they had with the record label to get Daniel his first producing gig. It works out really good for Daniel. It doesn't work out great for Martha and the Muffins. Uh, but Daniel goes on to produce this record, and he records this particular song in the basement of the Edge's house. And he's messing with the mixing console to to get that sound. That sound on Edge's guitar in this song is what Daniel calls the shimmer. And uh, it's it's from messing with all of these presets that he had within the mixing console to really to play with the the sound that they get. Um here's a fun fact about this too. They shot a video for this song, but they never worked it to MTV. It ends up only on the outside it's America documentary, which came out in eighty seven. Okay. Until recently. They just Officially, and I don't know if it had been on the bootleg version, but they just officially put it on YouTube in February of 2021. Really? Yeah, so you can now go watch the video for uh, In God's Country. That is an amazing thing. I didn't realize that they had not stuck a, a music out, music video out for, for that. And definitely The Edge, you know, he is the epitome of, of guitar playing these days. Probably over the last 40 years, there aren't a whole lot of guitar players out there that have been as innovative as him. Yeah, and I it, it is an interesting question of like how much Daniel Lanois was involved there, right? Like and how much that production really plays into. I mean, because when you think about you too, I mean, all the time people will it will talk about Oh, that kind of sounds like U2 or that has that U2 anthemic build or whatever, you know, and there was so much around them. And I, have you seen U2 live? 
Yes. Did you go to the the show recently, like the last five years that that no, tour? The I, I know I saw them the Unforgettable Fire tour. Oh, okay. Oh, you saw uh, the good stuff. Yeah, I saw some <laughs> of, some of the old stuff. I actually had an opportunity to see them play the War Tour in. Ooh the Fulton theater in Pittsburgh. And I was like 13. And I was just, my parents were like, yeah, no, we're not sending yeah, yeah. you to downtown Pittsburgh to go see some rock band. Uh, that come we've on, never mom and dad. Of. Yeah. And it's like, to this day, it's like, you know, I, I try to live life with like that. No regret thing. It's like the one thing I regret. I never really got to do is go see <laughs> yeah, that war yeah, tour because yeah. they ran through their entire catalog and then they started playing stuff again. <laughs> because they Amazing. they only had a, a you know a few albums out at that time and they started running out of material yeah so yeah I've got a few of those moments and then also uh, where where I like I didn't see the band uh, and I wish I'd had but um, my uh, w- one of them is that when I was in college the White Stripes played at a bar in town and they were just coming up and we didn't really know if they were going to hit or not, but I, you were, it was right when the buzz was building and I was like, okay, I guess I'll go see these guys. And it was, I think it held about 200 people in that bar. So I was planning on it on Tuesday or on Monday night, there was going to be a Tuesday night show and Tuesday morning I woke up and some airplanes flew into some towers and it was September 11th, 2001. And I just was not in the mood to go to a bar that night. And th- kind of figured it got canceled. Turned out it didn't get canceled. About 40 people showed up for that show. So I could have seen the iconic September 11th, 2001 white stripes bar show with 40 other people. And I passed on it. So we, we all have our regrets is what I'm saying. Yeah. And this is a total sideline uh, thought about you too. But in, in when I saw that, uh, tour the unforgettable fire tour and there was a young lady at my high school that had been struck and killed by a car not a week or two before and somebody actually got a hold of somebody related to the band connected to the band whether it was a manager or actually um i don't think she actually got connected to the the band themselves but told them the story this young lady her name was beth very very big fan of the band was supposed to be at the concert that night and shared the story of what happened and they actually dedicated a song to her at the concert that night and just totally brought the house down is a you know very very cool thing for them to do you know rock bands are rock bands and they get you know big heads and you know and i just thought it was it said an amazing thing you know for them to recognize the fact that you know they lost a fan yeah and they, and they you know made a tribute to her and uh, i thought that was really really cool then well moving on to our final song if you have ever been to seymour indiana there is a set of railroad tracks that runs through the center of town much like many of the small midwestern american towns Right by those railroad tracks at the intersection of South Chestnut Street and St. Louis Avenue is a tribute to the native son of this quaint Indiana town, John Mellencamp. Oh, yeah, buddy. At the time of its release, nothing epitomized the hopes and dreams of middle American youth like Jack and Diane, those two American kids from the heartland. What is the story behind this great classic? First of all, the reason that Midwestern kids... I think that this epitomizes their dreams is is purely working of the record label. Uh, it's not how the song was written. The song was actually written to be a story of an interracial couple and the struggle that they would have. And the record label made Mellencamp change it because they didn't think it was marketable. So the fact that it would go on to have the success that it had in this other 
you know, kind of being a totally different song. It's crazy, but it, it's based on a 1962 Tennessee Williams film called Sweet Bird of Youth. Really? Yeah. No idea. I have no yeah. idea that. See, this is why we have Brian on. Yeah, He's well, just full of... And, and it's a great story because Mellencamp had kind of abandoned this song. And uh, when he's finishing up American Fool, like up to up to this point, his career hadn't he hadn't been doing great. And there's all of this stuff. We don't have time for this, but we need to do an episode on Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories about about John Cougar, Johnny Cougar versus John Mellencamp, right? And the idea that he was saddled with this persona they were trying to give him of being Johnny Cougar. Um, I mean, there was a, literally a guy that told him that people wouldn't be able to pronounce Mellencamp, which I don't understand. Yeah. That. <laughs> uh, don't you love so, record labels? Whew, and so they got some of these wrong and some of these right. Okay, so um, so he's finishing up American Fool, which goes on to be the kind of the album that defines him for a while, right? It's uh, 82, and he gets Mick Ronson to come in to play guitar and help produce. Do you know who Mick Ronson is? I don't. So Mick Ronson was in, a, was in The Spiders from Mars. He was in Bowie's backing band. So he comes in and they're going through the stuff that Mellencamp's got for this record. And like, I, I think he's at this point, like not even sure he's going to put Jack and Diane on it. And he plays it for, uh, uh, for Mick and Mick says, this is the quote. I'm going to see if I can do a British accent. You got to, you got to put the baby rattles in there, mate. And, uh, that was more <laughs> Australian. Mellencamp's on record is saying, what does put the baby rattles in there mean? And what he meant was you need like a percussive breakdown. And that's what leads to them doing the let it rock, let it roll, that whole thing, uh, which arguably is kind of what takes that song from level one to level nine, right? Like it's it's pretty much what puts it over the edge and makes it the song that it is. Uh, and we're all, you know, Bowie's guitar players who we have to thank for that. So all the way from a- across the pond, uh, the guy changing American music is... Uh, is actually a British dude who used to hang out with Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, I think uh, it, somewhere down the road, I think I heard that Diane might have actually been the name of John Mellencamp's first wife. I'm not sure he's a really so a interesting big thing fan. about that. Interesting thing about that is way to tie this back to somebody we've already talked about. So I saw an interview with Kid Rock several years ago, where whoever was interviewing him, it was on a major network, was kind of made light of the fact that he had just become a grandpa, and he was like. I mean, I think he's maybe 50 now, like late 40s. You know what age John Mellencamp became a grandpa at? No idea. 37. No way. Yeah, he had his first kid when he was 18, and she had a kid when she was 19. Wow. So he was a grandpa at 37. So his grandkids are like in there, like pushing 40 now. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. Have you you ever heard John's sense of humor? He appears on a... uh, um, and he hasn't been on in, in quite a while, but he appeared on the Bob and Tom show quite a bit because uh, mm-hmm. he was from Indiana. Yeah. And that show uh, comes out of Indianapolis and they would have him on and he would have like these other characters that he would do. And he is actually an extremely funny individual and, you know, wouldn't necessarily know it from his music performance, but uh, he could probably actually do stand up comedy. So, I mean, and the other thing about Mellencamp that I think we'd be remiss not to mention is he's um, he's been pretty, he's had a presence, at least a house, if not living there long term in Savannah. Really? Yeah, he's... Um, he had a house on Hilton Head for a while. 
he owned one that I believe, and maybe this is folklore, and maybe I've got this story wrong, but one or two houses down from the Sea Pines Beach Club, he actually owned for a while. And I'm sure I'll get emails and calls going, okay, that's not true, or yeah, hey, you sure did. But, <laughs> and I guess we'll find out. But yeah, that's that's a story I you know knew in the 80s was he actually owned property in Hilton Head. No, that's true. That, was, that happened in 94. He bought a house on Hilton Head. Um, but now they've got... I, at least as of 10 years ago or so, they had a house on Tybee Island. And then uh, he cut an album in Savannah 10, 12 years ago, I think 2010 or so. He cut he cut whatever record that was in Savannah. So, he, I mean, the dude loves the low country. Oh, so, absolutely. What, yeah. well, who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? I mean, look at what everything ah, it has to offer. We're professionals, Jay. Look at that. <laughs> we are. Way to wrap it up. <laughs> the podcast is Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories with Murdoch and Brian Eichenberger. Please uh, check it out on uh, Apple Podcasts or anywhere you download podcasts. Brian, we thank you so much for your time. Oh man, thanks and, for having me. This is so fun. I'll, I'll, I'll do this every beach related holiday. Just yeah, we got to find know. something for Labor Day, something that wraps up, <laughs> you know, like end of summer songs. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll have, and you start start doing some research. Maybe we can have you on as a, as a uh, consultative researcher on an episode of Rock and Roll Bed Up Stories. Sounds great. Brian, thanks. Hey, thank you.